0: We're continuing in a Spirit-Soul-Body series, and this morning is the first of two weeks looking at body, and then we'll have a concluding uh, message tying the whole thing together two weeks from today. But as we look at uh, the body, I just want to frame this by sharing with you two stories uh, that I've had, both encounters with people whose faith was shaped by a bodily encounter with a person. The first instance, um, a friend of mine is now a believer, but was not a believer when he came, went, attended a mega church. He visited a, a, a big church, about 4,000 people in Los Angeles. And he wanted to speak with the pastor afterwards, and so he was standing in line, waiting. And then when he, his turn came to speak with the pastor, he he, asked, he was in the middle of asking a question And someone of great importance in the church came up to interrupt him, and uh, I think it was an elder or something like that, and said, hey, we got to settle this. And then uh, the senior pastor rebuked the elder, and he said, not now. And he turned back to the guy, and he said, "Now finish your question. And then he answered his question, and then he turned back to this elder. That guy said to me years later, he said, I don't remember his answer to the question, but the way that he honored me made me want to live the way he lived. And that's what opened the door for me coming to come in Christ. And then uh, an alternate encounter in a mega church. Someone came in, super discouraged, had questions. But as they walked forward to ask the pastor, they realized the pastor has bodyguards and is completely inaccessible. And, and then uh, they watched the staff member come up to the pastor and report something and then they watch the pastor get really mad at the staff member and send them away with a derogatory comment and that person said to me and so I stopped being interested in Christianity from that point on. I was like this if this is if this is what pastors are like, I don't want anything to do with it. Now the point here isn't to make you like paranoid about every single moment you're alive, but it the point is to say the way you live out your faith in your body matters immensely. And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. Because if we fail at the body level, it's a fail. No matter how orthodox we are doctrinally, if we fail at the body level, it's a fail. So as we come to the body portion of this Spirit Soul Body series, I want to begin by acknowledging that the church here has a long history of a tortured relationship with the physical world and the body. There are lots of reasons for this, including three that I mentioned here at the outset. Number one, the the teachings of Plato have influenced the church for 2,000 years basically, because when uh, Jesus came along, Plato had come before, and Plato taught that there's a hierarchy to reality, and that the invisible realm is actually more real and, better than the physical realm. And so you kind of end up in that hierarchical model then, you end up with uh, like a, it's called dualism, where this matters more than that. Then uh, we as Christians often tend to validate the faith of another strictly on a doctrinal level. So if you're sitting here and you're like this, yeah, I'm not sure what I think about the deity of Jesus, boom, we're on you, we're arguing, we're, we're going to set you straight. And, and then the insidious thing about that is if we're like this, oh, okay, I convinced him, then we think now he's mature because he's got the right kind of doctrine. Does that, does that make sense? And then the third thing that is a, is a problem for us, we in the West, we love our minds. We spend a great deal of time thinking and I'm going to say this to you, and don't take this and run with it too far, but you think too much. Do you know what I mean by that? Like how many of you go, you go to bed at night and when you're supposed to just fall asleep, suddenly your mind clicks on and you're thinking about tomorrow and you're thinking about yesterday and you're thinking about the conversations you had and plans and anxiety. Whose mind kicks into overdrive when you're trying to go to sleep? That's, this is a thing, right? Uh, and, and, and so we think too much, we're affected by the teaching of Plato and we emphasize doctrine over living. And all of this then creates a paradigm in which... Church is holy, my job is holy, praying is holy, skiing less holy, drinking coffee less holy, sex unholy, right? And, and, and so uh, one person writes this, uh, she says, what I learned early on in church was to fear the world, or at least suspect it, and I learned that my body was of the world and that my bodily shame was appropriate, Now, we got to get over this, right? But I grew up in a very similar environment to the person who wrote those sentences. The hymns that framed my childhood largely had to do with waiting until I died so that I could then enter into the good life, which was only on the other side. One, One hymn continues to echo in my mind. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a watchful eye. Like, oh, and then the question is, who will take me to the other side? Like, I want to, the goal is the other side. And what's on the other side? Well, that's after you die. So in the meantime, yeah, you're here. You're, quote, unquote, stuck here. But don't worry. Someday you get to escape this world and go to the other side. In fact, the other hymn that we sang frequently in the church in which I grew up was entitled literally, All Fly Away, Right? I'll fly away, fly away. Do you know it, right? And the idea is this. Here we are. We're, you know, we're sick. Our parents are haranguing us. We hate our body. There's racism in the world. There's pollution. Australia's on fire. We're politically divided. But don't worry about it. I'll fly away. I'll, like, I'm going to get out of here, and then all my problems will be solved. This, all of this creates a paradigm shift away from incarnation in the world to separation from the world. And if your paradigm is separation from the world, then you withdraw from the world. And, and then you're like, yeah, whatever, I got to go to do these things. But my, like my real world is my like hidden world in Christ. If I withdraw from the world, I withdraw from my own body. I withdraw from creation. And I'm going to say to you, this paradigm of withdrawal instead of incarnation, is completely wrong. Galatians 1.16 says this. It pleased God to, and then here's how the sentence is finished. It pleased God to reveal God's Son in me. That's what Paul says. So what makes God happy? What makes God happy is when God's Son is revealed in us. In other words, when people look at you and so, by, by something, by virtue of the encounter, causes people to say, wow. I want what that person has. This guy, this senior pastor who actually pays attention to the person in front of him, it's that act of paying attention that is more important than the sermon. Because that's what it means to embody faith. So we want to talk about embodiment this morning and understand that in order for the Spirit of Christ who lives in us to find robust and joyful expression in our bodies, we have to begin by. Viewing the body differently. And to help you view the body differently, we're going to do some theology here this morning, beginning with this, this observation, this truth from the scripture. God has a mailing address, uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And God's been moving along the way, and God has a new address now, and we'll we'll unpack what this new address means for us. So, let's talk about these things. Ultimately, this will get us into the body. So, what what are we what are we saying, God? What are we saying when we say God has a mailing address? Here's the thing. In Genesis uh, chapters one through three, when God created the heavens and the earth, we just heard this uh, beautiful song song about creation, right? I don't know if you know this. There are huge debates within the church about Genesis one and two. Anybody aware of those debates, like age of the earth stuff? And the people argue: Is it six thousand years old, ten thousand years old, five million years old? 13.7 billion years old and a guy named John Walton wrote a book entitled Lost World of Genesis 1 and his answer to that question and I'm summarizing is this who cares? <laughs> like and the, the reason he says that is he says it's the like if you're reading to, to divine age of the earth you're totally missing the point. You have to read this as a Mesopotamian creation narrative which in fact it was. John Walton is this dude from uh, Wheaton College. And so he says, if you read it as a creation narrative, then you understand that every Mesopotamian culture had its own creation narrative. And in every creation narrative, there are gods who create the earth. And then on the earth, God builds the, the gods, the various gods build temples. But then you get to Genesis. And off the map, radically different than every other narrative is this. God created the earth and declared... In Genesis 1 and 2, the earth is God's temple. Now, how do you know that? Well, because at the end of Genesis 1, you know this, uh, it says, and so God saw all that he made, and it was very, what? Good. Good. And then on the seventh day, what does it say? On the seventh day, God Rested. rested. Okay, this is the punchline. Where God rests, that's God's temple. So God creates the earth, As God's resting place, the earth is God's temple. Boom. That's where God lives. So the glory of God is everywhere. It's amazing. It's like the Garden of Eden. In fact, it is the Garden of Eden, right? So the glory of God is there. It's all beautiful. It's glorious. Then sin enters in in Genesis 3. When sin enters in, now the earth, Genesis 3, is under a curse. The glory of God cannot any longer be at complete rest on the earth because there's this battle going on in the earth between Satan and the forces of light and all that stuff. So God is not at rest, the earth's a battlefield. So God creates a place where God's glory can rest. Where does God's glory rest? Well, uh, when Israel is traveling through the wilderness... God's glory rests in a mobile worship place called the tabernacle in the whole, like in a room, within a room, within a room, within a box. God's glory, okay? So that's, that was God's resting place. And then um, Israel establishes themselves as a nation and they build a permanent dwelling place for the glory of God it's not called a tabernacle it's called a temple and you read you know uh first kings seven or whatever it is eight uh the temple's finished the spirit of God you know comes enters the temple ultimately the ark of the covenant all that stuff so where's God if you asked Israel where's God live what would what would they say God lives in the temple. That's where God's glory... God's glory isn't everywhere. God's glory is in the temple. The temple is literally a sanctuary separated from the chaos of the world. Boom. That's where God's glory lives. Now, uh, if God lives there... And by the way, this sound machine is nothing like the glory of God, just so you know. <laughs> but if God's glory lives there and I live here, then for me to encounter God's glory, what do I have to do? i got to go there. I have to go there. And so we use language like this. I'm going to church. And part of the reason we use that language is because if God is living here, the implication is God is not living here. If we if we think that way, hear me. If we think that way, then uh, you're here this morning to quote unquote meet God, and then you know in 21 minutes I'll stop speaking, more like 24 probably, but whatever, (laughs) I'll stop speaking, and then and then you'll we'll sing, and then we'll leave, and it'll be like this. Okay, we met God, and now we're back out there, and wherever you are, you're at Amazon, you're at Swedish. You're working at a TV station. You're teaching a school. You're at uh, Children's. Whatever you do, you're out there. But God's still here, and you're out there. That's, like, we would never say that, but we think that way. And what it does is it creates a division between the holy and unholy that's rooted in the Old Testament address of God. God lives in God's building. And the practical expression of that creates a suspicion of our bodies and a suspicion of the world. Barbara Brown Taylor writes in her, in her book entitled An Altar in the World, and now I quote from her directly. She said, at the age of 16, I joined church and quickly learned that my love of the world was misplaced. The church taught me that only God was worthy of love. Only the Bible could teach me about God. And for the first time in my life, I was asked to choose between God and the world. Like all who write what they remember, I'm inventing the truth a little bit, but when I was 16, what I think I remember is that I learned in church to fear the world, or at least suspect it, and I learned that my body was of the world, and therefore my bodily shame was appropriate. And and, and so uh, if the Spirit lives in a particular place, then, listen, if God has a house, we go there to be with God, and then we leave, and tacitly, we live as if God isn't with us anymore, or maybe we think that God is in the mountains, but God isn't at McDonald's at Third and Pint, uh, or, 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 or that God isn't in the motels on Aurora that are a nine-iron chip shot from here, or that, or that God is here but not there. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor continues, do we build God a house so that we can choose when to go see God? (laughs) Do we build God a house in lieu of having God stay at our house? (laughs) Plus, what happens to the rest of the world when we build four walls, even four gorgeous walls like these, cap them with a steeple roof and designate that to be the house of God? What happens to the riverbanks and the mountaintops and the deserts and the trees? And I would add, downtown in the hospital, what happens to people who never show up in our houses of God? But this is a big problem, do you see? So if we create this division and we say God lives here, then this becomes quote-unquote a holy place. And, and the implication of this being a holy place is that if this is a holy place, then that isn't a holy place. Are you with me? Like, oh, this space south of 80th, holy. That space, called Bagley Elementary, uh, secular. Bah, bah. No warning, wrong thinking. Okay, so gonna, we want go, we got we got we have to address that wrong way of thinking for many many reasons. But one of the things that happens is if this is a holy place, at least in my childhood, holiness implied kind of fear and and uh, excess care not to offend. I remember, as a kid, running on a pew after a a church of sense. So you're sitting in pews right now. Imagine, service is over, and then these kids come back in here, and there's a kid running on a pew. That'd be me at the age of six or whatever. And my dad saw me, and boy, he popped right over, wagged his finger at me. He says, you'll never run out of church again. And then this is what he said, this is God's house. And then, it stuck with me. This is God's house, so wipe that smile off your face. (laughs) And I'm like, wow. Okay, so, like, because this is where God lives, be afraid. Because this is where God lives, don't have fun. Now, when we go home, we'll watch The Wonderful World at Disney, and we'll laugh at the guy who lives with Silly Putty or whatever he does, I don't know. It'll all be hysterical. But boy, when you're in church, Shut up! Because this is where God lives. Hey, I have good news. God has a new address, okay? What's the new address? Colossians 1, 26 to 27 is the foundation of all of our thinking, and it's really the foundation of discipleship. And I quote it again from the message because of its clarity in this moment. There's a mystery that's been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open... God wants everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. And the mystery in a nutshell is just this. Christ is in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. This is the substance of our message, period. In other words, If the glory of God now dwells in you, in the person of the risen Jesus now living inside of you, if Christ lives in you, God's glory is in you. God's glory is at rest in you. If God's glory is at rest in you, hello, you have become what? The temple. You're the temple. This isn't the temple. (laughs) This is where we gather to find the temple. But we find the temple through eye contact, through coffee, through small groups, through serving through singing, through worshiping together, through testifying, through praying for one another. That's how you find the glory. You will not find the glory by filling your head with data, ever. The glory of God is not data. The glory of God is the embodied person of Jesus and that's you. So show up and recognize you're the presence of Christ. Because if Christ is at rest in you, then you are living into your calling, according to 1 Corinthians 6, which says this, we read it, your body is a temple, a resting place for the Holy Spirit. So now you don't go to a building to find God. God lives in you. Barbara Brown Taylor, again in this book, Alter the World, articulates what this means for her, and it so deeply resonates with me. This is what she says. What's saving my life now is the conviction that there's no spiritual treasure to be found apart from the bodily experiences of human life on earth. My life depends on engaging the modest, ordinary physical activities with the most exquisite attention I can give them. My life depends on ignoring all the touted distinctions between the secular and sacred, physical and spiritual, body and soul. This makes all of life an opportunity for worship. So, again, to recap, you have a spirit here. Now, Christ lives in you. You have the spirit. When this spirit begins to run the show, your mind, will, and emotions are increasingly shaped by the Spirit. As your mind, will, and emotions are shaped by the Spirit, the Spirit of God now is going to direct your body. And what that means is everything you do in the body is an opportunity to make Christ present. And so you can pay attention to everything. When you leave here and you go work tomorrow, or you leave here this afternoon, you go cook a meal, or you go out to dinner Or you go for a run, everything is an opportunity to make Christ visible. So all of life becomes this potential for worship. For me, splitting wood can be worship or not worship. Building a fire, worship or not worship. Uh, Making a good cup of French press, worship or not worship. Enjoying said cup, worship or not worship, right? Right? Uh, Last night I got down here from the mountains and saw this, you know, strange orb in the sky and a shadow, like I saw my shadow, reintroduced myself to my shadow, hello, haven't seen you since Thanksgiving, you know, (laughs) and decided in lieu of that to go for a little short like jog partway around Green Lake, and this is where this worship stuff gets just so practical, you know, I'm running, and there's a guy there. Some of you have seen the guy. There's a sign, and, and the sign says, hey, uh, I need a good conversation, or however it's framed. And so, you know, I run, and I see the guy with the sign, and, I'm, and the Holy Spirit is saying to me, really, speak to this guy. And then I'm like this, whatever, and I just keep running. <laughs> and then I, come, I end up coming back around, and that same kind of voice is they're just so present, so I just, I just stop and say, oh, you want a good conversation? And then I turn my phone off, the little running app thing, and then I just sit there and talk for 45 minutes. Crazy, right? And I, you know, I, I wish I could say, oh yeah, so by the end, he was weeping and prayed to receive Christ as his personal Savior and all that stuff. And I, and I am not here to say that. I'm here to say, worship is simply living attentively to the Holy Spirit so that when you get up in the morning and build a fire, you express gratitude for the wood. And when you make coffee, you pray for the people who pick those beans. And when you run the lake, you listen. And when you sit on a plane, you listen. And, 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 and when you're at work, you're, you're paying attention to the people that you're serving because that is worship. And you are the temple because you're God's new mailing address. The glory of God in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does God's new glory, uh, God's new address mean? What does God's new address mean? A couple of things. It means a body displaying Christ, a body enjoying gifts, a body liberated. And I'm gonna just kind of run through these quickly here at the end. Because Christ lives in you, then your, your calling is to display the body, like the life of Christ. So in the context of sexual ethics, Paul tells the Corinthians that being a Christ follower entails a commitment to glorifying God in the body. That's what he's writing about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 20. And so what this means is Paul is explaining in 1 Corinthians 6 that treating your sexuality the same way uh, you treat food is abnormal. In Corinth, it was normal. The Corinthians had a saying, the body's for food, food's for the body. But the saying was, uh, it was an idiom intended by the Corinthians to apply to sexual ethics. So uh, the body's for food, food's for the body. What does that mean? It simply means this. The best diet in the world is this. Uh, When you're hungry, eat, and when you're full, stop. That's a pretty good way to live. And so if you're hungry, what are you supposed to do? Eat, right? Well, the Corinthians were like this. Well, of course, that makes sense. And so apply that then to your sexuality as well. If you're hungry, in other words, if, you, if you're hungry for sexual you know, release or sexual fulfillment, then go for it. Because that's what you do. Your sex is just another appetite. And then Paul goes on to say, no, it's not. Because you are the embodiment of Christ, you got to treat sex differently. Treating sex the same way you treat food is not normal. And he kind of goes on and he talks about a bunch of things. As you go through the scriptures, there's a lot of things that are normal that we have made peace with. Not sleeping is not normal. Of course, Psalm 125 and Psalm 5. Like God, God's desire is that when we go to sleep in the evening that we would actually sleep. And if we're not sleeping, it's not normal. Eating junk that drains you of energy is not normal. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you're eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. So your food choices are a way of embodying Christ. Living indoors 24-7, not normal. Why? Because we're told in the Scriptures, Psalm 19, Romans 1, Romans 10, Psalm 103, Psalm 104, we're told that God doesn't just speak through this text, God speaks through the book of creation. God's intent is that we pay attention. And we can't pay attention to what's outside unless we're outside. Yet we have to get up off of our seats and go outside. Living indoors all the time, not normal. Addicted to your phone, not normal. Hating your body, not normal. Psalm 139. Living with constant anxiety, not normal. Philippians 4. Having a countenance that is missing joy most of the time, not normal. Hoarding your stuff while the world goes hungry, not normal. So get this, the proving ground of our faith is ultimately determined by the way we live in the body. There's this language in the Scripture of, of clothing ourselves with Christ. It's in the book of Romans. And then Paul articulates that with even greater clarity in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, listen, when you wake up in the morning and you put your sweater on, remind yourself, I'm called to put on kindness, compassion, humility, a commitment to justice. Why? Because I am the presence of Christ in the world, and so are you. If people will see Jesus today, they'll only see Jesus as they see Jesus in you. And we're convinced that we can argue people into the kingdom of God by proving the deity of Christ, by proving his virgin birth, by proving his humanity, by proving the validity of the text, and if you prove anyth- everything, if you prove everything intellectually, but you never smile, you've blown it. That, you get it? Like, when the day is done... It must be made visible. Christ must be made visible in the body. Otherwise, this doesn't work. I was um, speaking a few years ago at a conference. And when you speak at a conference, everyone's sharing meals together as well. And I I remember uh, one of the wait staff just engaging this person in conversation hey, where do you go to school and what's your major and what do you want to do after school and thanks for serving and I know you're working for next to nothing and I'm glad you're here. Your gifts are super important. I said to the guy, you get a bad sermon and people are like this. Well, whatever, I just never listen to that guy again. You get a bad meal and people are angry, right? So like I said, what you do matters. And then I, on the last day, I publicly thanked the cooks and the waitstaff. And I don't always do this, so I'm not holding myself up as an example here. But then, a few days later, I got an email from this guy. He said, I've been here all summer. You're like the last year of the summer. It's the first time anyone's affirmed my calling ministry all summer long. He said, I was, I was ready to throw the faith away. But thank you so much for that simple word of encouragement. Now, it was so convicting to me in that little illustration, is how easily we blow off the promptings of the Holy Spirit to say a word of encouragement, to stop and actually buy Real Change magazine and engage somebody in conversation, to stop and, 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 and pray for someone, to encourage someone in the, in the checkout line, to pray. Maybe God prompts you to pray for somebody who cuts you off in traffic. Like when we blow this stuff off, we're, now faith is up here, but it's not here in the body. And if it's not in the body, it's no good. That's what this whole thing is about. So we want to be a body displaying Christ. Second, we want to be a body enjoying God's gifts. Uh, We don't want to live as if we're just enduring this time on earth, waiting to die. Because what God has given us here is good. Ecclesiastes 2.24, Nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 to 20. Here's what I found to be good and fitting. Eat, drink, enjoy oneself in all one's labor. Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. Here's what I found. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your, this, your, your sex life with your spouse. Enjoy it. There's a whole book devoted to it. Song of Solomon, right? So God's desire is that our spirit's new identity and the redemption of our soul story will result in in a life of gratitude for the gifts of God's kindness that are pouring into our lives every day. Because God's gifts are pouring into your life every day. Every cup of clean water, every, every little cup of coffee, sunshine, sunset, driving, friends, intimacy, mountains, every breath, seasons, all gifts. And if we, if we live as people who enjoy the gifts of God... And, and continually offer thanks and practice gratitude, and then not only receive God's gifts, but actively try and give God's gifts to others as well through hospitality and service and generosity. And as in a few minutes, we'll pray for some folks who went out in on Nicaragua as we, as, we, as we want to not only receive but give. That dance of giving and receiving causes us to embody Christ. And when we embody Christ, we then become little Jesus, Christian. The false divide is the church often taught me I need to not enjoy this life, and the world taught me to only live for this life. And if I only live for this life, the gifts of God, food, exercise, sexuality, become addictions and destructive. And if I avoid all the gifts that God is giving me, then I become this disembodied saint filled with information. Neither of these are right. But the only way to live walking down the middle is to live in relationship with God, a life of gratitude, fully enjoying God's gifts, listening to the Holy Spirit so that we embody, in our bodies, we make Jesus visible. And this leads to a body liberated. What did Jesus say in John 8? Hey, if you know the truth, my word abides in you. If you'll know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. And if, you're, if the Son has made you free, you're gonna be free. free. Watch this. Free from addictions in your body. Like you'll hold the gifts of God properly. Free from body shame. You'll be able to accept your body. Even free from fear of aging. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll understand that this body, as glorious as it is, is only a shadow of a, of a new body received someday. And so, yeah, we're all growing older. Whatever. It's okay. I, like I run the lake, and I've been running Green Lake since I went to college. And in college, I'd run three times Green Lake. And count the people I would pass and look with disdain at those lazy people. And now I don't pass anyone. Everyone passes me. And I look with disdain on those young people. (laughs) But it's all good. We're still we're still breathing. And when we're done breathing, there's more. Uh, When I was, when I went away uh, to college, I was dealing with the death of my dad. It had led for me to depression, anger, and anxiety. And I'll just let you know, that kind of stuff shows up in the body. So I I had not just kind of these emotional things going on, but I had health issues as well. I had autoimmune issues, I had digestion issues, I had sleep issues. I went off to, to college and I went off to college mad at God and then I, I met some guys that remind me of you guys in the front row actually. I met some guys who were so hospitable and welcoming to me that I was drawn into their world. And then I ended up starting to play piano for a Bible study and then I went off to some retreat and I committed to making knowing God the number one goal in my life and that spirit that began to thaw Start changing my soul, right? We had to think differently. Uh, my anxiety just disappeared. I had this confidence in God. I remember failing a physics test and leaving that test singing Handel's Messiah, like, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. <laughs> it's all good, right? And then that starts to affect your body eventually as well. So I came home from college after my first year away. And I remember the first time I went back to church, some people saw me. Several people said the same thing. They said, really? You're Richard? I don't recognize you. You look so much better than when you left. I said, yeah, I left sick, came back healed. And then I have a story. Knowing God, spirit, soul, body. It please God, Galatians 1.16, to what? Fill your head with data? No. It please God to reveal God's Son in me. So when you leave here today, you go out into a world hungry for beauty, justice, service, hospitality, intimacy, generosity, and you get to be Jesus for a hungry world. Go be that. Father, meet us now as we respond. We're so profoundly grateful for the opportunity to embody you. Show us clear steps to take in each of our lives in order that we might respond well. we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I know that pretty soon uh, members of the prayer team will be up here. You can bring your body forward to pray with them as the Holy Spirit is leading you to do so because this is how we worship. Or you can use our prayer books to thank God for the gifts that God has given. However you want to respond, this is your moment.